Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Julia and J. Ryan. All right, so before we officially get started, wow. I want to do a quick audience survey. Are you okay with this? Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay, by applause, who here in the room would describe themselves as a writer? Just applaud. Okay, that's good. And now, who here would describe themselves as a reader? Um, you're in the right place. Uh, I was struck by this particular book for many reasons, but um, I wanted to kind of just briefly discuss it before we begin speaking because structurally, this book is amazing, so all the writers in the crowd can get into that. And emotionally, this book is amazing, so all of the readers, and hopefully the writers are the readers as well, <laughs> um, will enjoy it from that perspective too. Um, it's kind of like a really great watch. Uh, you can admire it just purely on a level of, oh, that's shiny, that's beautiful. You can enjoy it just via that simple aesthetic quality, or you can delve into it and marvel at how everything interlocks, how uh, passages echo each other, how characters uh, share similar journeys, all of these things that are very writerly, but you can also just read it and enjoy it. So wherever you're coming from, this is an incredible book. So I just want to say thank you for writing this incredible uh, book. Yeah. <laughs> right up top. Um, and that was kind of the thing. I realized as I was preparing for this, uh, the structure is great, but something that's even more wonderful is the fact that each of your characters is so resonant and so full-bodied that I sort of feel like I want to ask you how they're doing. Oh. You know, like, <laughs> at the end of the book, I'm like, you know, wh how have each of these people, what are they up to now? Like, what's Octavia doing? And what's... Oh, wow. And uh, that led me to wonder, when you began <laughs> writing this... Uh, what character appeared to you first? Like, who mm. came out of the woodwork and started inhabiting your brain and drove you to, drive, drove you to write this novel? Uh, first of all, I think I need to take a moment. Um, <laughs> this is like a, this is a my life of, of, of L.A. and basically of my adulthood, because that's, that's L.A. And um, there, I, there, I mean, there's people I want to thank, but, I mean, you're all here, you know. Like, uh, <laughs> Christ. Um, <laughs> Yeah, um, boy, when you when you've wanted to do something your whole life and uh, and you do it and this happens, um, if this is what heaven was like, I'd kill myself right now. Um, uh, you know, I'm looking around the room and I'm seeing so many people I I love and admire and respect, and people I've worked with, people I've played in bands with, uh, people that I missed, you know, cowbell cues with, you know, people that I was at Northwestern with. You know, uh, you know, people that I've met just this year, you know, uh, and people here from out of town. There's Mike Cryer is here from um, Arizona. He came out. Uh, my agent is here from New York just for today. Ryan Harvey's here in the front row. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, you know, people I've lived with, like Josh Shank, you know, <laughs> um, um, and plenty of people who uh, this book wouldn't exist without. Uh, because, like, uh, you know, George Ducker or uh, Jake Strunk, you know, they... I like to say they read my work whether if they want to or not. 
Uh, people like Lou Matthews, uh, who I think was really the first writing teacher who took a look at what became a chapter of this book and said, okay, this is different than what you've been writing before. Like, do more of that, you know? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and a, and so many novelists here I, I deeply respect. Uh, a novelist I'm, who I'm editing right now, who I'm so happy to, uh, Margaret Wappler. And, uh, yeah, and, and uh, yeah, a lot of other people who... Uh, Boy, I can't even get started. Meg Hari, oh Christ, yeah, this is great. <laughs> Sasha Howells, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, I don't want to name everyone in the room. Uh, but anyway, okay, all right. Uh, what was the question? <laughs> well, I think it speaks to the question. Oh, okay. Obviously, oh, you oh love... the first character. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, well, uh, Jordy Snelling. Yeah. yeah, yeah, in the chapter of Venison, yeah. He, I'd never read anybody, I'd never read a story about anyone like him before. Uh, Jordy is this guy, his relationship with food is really intimate and intense in that uh, he doesn't really care about it. Uh, he doesn't, he eats ramen and drinks, uh, you know, Coors Light and eats Pizza Hut, but uh, he goes into the woods the first weekend of November uh, every year in Minnesota and shoots deer, uh, Dress it, field dresses it, uh, hangs it up in his garage, and makes it into venison for his family. And I grew up in an entire family of people who did that. And I, I never have, but, um, yeah. And, uh, and uh, I, I deeply respect it and admire it, and um, I just really wanted to read a story about that. Um, well, you had that essay in BuzzFeed about growing up oh, yeah, in your teenage yeah. years and dreaming of being able to, you know, travel to other countries and eat. And uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> so it seems like it was it was influenced uh, by that kind of heavily. Yeah. Like oh, oh, quickly, yeah, a few more people too. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brooke Delaney, who obviously this book wouldn't exist without. Like she, yeah. Yeah. She heard every chapter as it was written, yeah, and um, yeah, all, all the all the way through now, and uh, and and also my partner in crime, Summer Block Kumar, who I do the hot dish program with, yeah, 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 exactly, yeah, two two of my favorite women in LA, and I'm pleased to pleased to just know them. Um, okay, anyway, I'm sorry, the question again. No, yeah. it's all right. I mean, that's something to talk about too, is how yeah. much the community influences and um, supports writing. Uh-huh. Uh, I was speaking to. Uh, Ryan Harbage just minutes yeah. ago yeah, sort of yeah. discussing the differences between New York and LA for example um, in terms of the supportive community vibe oh hey so. Rob oh Rob Roberge <laughs> <laughs> come on up you gotta see right here in front yeah, it literally has your name on it it literally has your name on it <laughs> yeah um, yeah exactly finally yeah yeah, literal is literal. Yeah, there should yeah. be a fine, I think, for people who misuse that, right? Yeah. Like par- a parking ticket. Uh, Rob, I have a figurative seat for you up here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not a literal? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> this is Rob. Rob is the first writing teacher I had as an adult. Um, uh, 2004, UCLA Extension. And um, wouldn't be here without him. I'm in this seat because, um, yeah, he, he, he encouraged me at a age in which I was, I think, finally ready to listen. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I certainly didn't in college. Uh, I thought I knew everything back then, so I didn't learn anything. Um, so, yeah, as an adult, um, I finally figured out I was ready to learn a thing or two, and Rob was the first guy to, you know, help me out. And, he, boy, yeah, I wouldn't be here without him. So thank you for coming. Yeah. 
All right. All right. So back to, I'm sorry, back to the questions. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. This is, this is your launch. Yeah. Whatever you want. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah. I think we're all here for you. So okay. we want to celebrate you. So. All right. Thank you. Um, but if we're going to ask questions, so you start off with yeah. Jordi Snelling. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. The something character I conceived of. Something that's great about this book, among many things, is the fact that you touch pretty much on every socioeconomic class, like within the Midwest. So you, you have Jordi who like eats at Subway, yeah. and then not, but then you have people who spend their entire lives sourcing ingredients and who are sure. legitimate foodies, yeah, uh, and belong to an entirely different like so-called class of people. Um, which I think is a mark of wonderful literature, something that manages to not just be confined to an incredibly narrow band, but expands beyond that. So my question is, you start with Jordi Snelling. How do you then branch out into all these other different areas? Like, what, how did the novel sort of like, evolve and progress, and how did you manage to touch on all these different areas of life and food and... Well, my initial plan for the novel was to write about a dinner party and work backwards and talk about who was at this dinner party. You know, I, I don't know how often you've been at a party and you realize, well, I know the host, and these people all know the host. Maybe it's a little like today for you. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, uh, like, we kind of wonder, how do all these other people know this person? Um, and being in this situation a lot in Los Angeles and as an adult, I thought I'd write a story working backwards from how a certain dinner party was populated. And then I quickly realized that the chef was the most interesting person. I want to know more about her. So I ended up turning it around and writing forwards to end at the dinner party and tell the story of the people who, most of them, yeah, even so, I went so far off the rails with that, it, it even ended up being a novel where not every character you meet ends up at it. Yeah. And that's anyway. something, too, um, you got a review in the New York Times, and they were noting that each chapter, except for one, is written from the perspective of a different character that kind of sheds light on the principal chef character, Ava. Mm -hmm. So yeah. uh, was that something, too, you were purposefully, like, you, yeah, you wanted to, like, have this kind of figure of mystery at the center that is only really known by other people? Or? Yeah, well, she's not always a figure of mystery, either. I mean, there's a chapter, the second chapter is from her point of view, but she does become increasingly remote, and that's by design. Each chapter, as you go on, you see a little less of her. So by the time, um, I don't want to do a spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> uh, by the time the last chapter rolls around, when that character's perspective comes into view, oh man, Lou Aguilar is here from, <laughs> from Miami, Florida. <laughs> I gotta ask, is Daniel here from Iceland? He said he was, <laughs> well, seriously, there was a guy from Iceland that was going to be here too, so uh, anyway, um, Daniel, if you're here, just shout out later. Um, uh, but anyway, um, God. Uh, um, yeah. Um, what? Yeah. To get to the last person. Oh, yeah, to get to the last person. Um, <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, Katie, Katie DiSabato, another wonderful debut novelist. Um, let's see. Um, what, what? We can just skip this part, too. Oh, no. <laughs> we don't it's need it's this, this part. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. Um, what was I, I? We could just, I mean, we could yeah. just part. We could I'm read. Sorry, I'm just overwhelmed could, by it. Yeah, yeah, no, I think. Okay. Well, 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 no, I'd like to hear another question. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. I can come up with a few. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Brooke. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, there was, and that was pretty much about it. Yeah, and the last chapter is, is from the point of view of uh, someone that hasn't seen my main character in a very long time and uh, is coming in to this person that has been remote from everybody. Um, yeah, and also, you know, as, as she rises in fame and stature and maturity, she does get more private. 
Um, so, yeah, I, yeah, the narrative reflects that. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's beautifully done. Um, oh, thanks. How would you feel about having a few choice sentences read, or is that a little too, <laughs> sure, sure. A little too much? No, that's fine. That's fine, Julia. Thank All you. All right. Um, I mean, this book is it's framed around food, but what I love is how you manage to you just have these wonderful standalone, practically standalone sentences. They're integrated into the narrative, but like as sentences, they're just marvelous. <laughs> uh, let's see. My from the beginning, I like this one. Even though she had an overbite and the shakes, she was six feet tall and beautiful, and not like a statue or a perfume advertisement, but in a realistic way, like how a truck or a pizza is beautiful at the moment you want it most. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's just fucking... That's just great. Uh, There's another sentence a little later on. Let's see here. Um... (laughs) I love this. He was trying to act relaxed and cool, which for him was pretty much impossible anyway, but really fucking hard after beating the shit out of something. <laughs> That's Jordy. Yeah. That was, that was the character that the novel originated with. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this whole section where he's trying to impress a girl, and he... Anyway, I don't want to spoil it for you, but it's hilarious. He doesn't yeah. impress her. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The best way of putting it. Um... Now, I, I, to shift gears a little bit, I think what makes this novel great, too, is the fact that you managed to incorporate not only hilarity, but really deep feeling. Um, and I wanted, to <laughs> I wanted to read this sentence, which I think it, stru- it stuck with me like for months after I read the book, the initial. The, it's just sort of, it's heartbreaking and gorgeous. This man walks into a Subway sandwich, and uh, Jordy again... And it says, when he placed, and his mother has just died, he says, when he placed his order for a foot-long meatball marinara with extra cheese and no vegetables, he wondered if the sandwich artist could tell that his mom had died. <laughs> like, I mean, and that's just, char- that's like the entire book is just basically sentence after sentence of brilliance, and you have to sort of stop and laugh or cry, you know, whichever one is appropriate. Usually it's some mixture of both. So, basically I'm just going to laud your work. Oh. So just kind of accept it. Um, okay. <laughs> That's what's happening. Um, but in terms of que- direct questions, um, I just wanted to ask you uh, sort of on this theme of characters, because obviously you're a very warm writer, you have a, a wonderful sense of people. Uh, are the characters from this book still with you? Oh, yeah. I miss them a lot, though. So yeah, they have it a- was my favorite year of my life, probably waking up and being with these people every day. Yeah, I really felt like, also they were sort of dictating to me, like they... Uh, like I was like, oh, I was like, don't do that. Oh, what do you do that for? That's, oh. but they're a lot more decisive than I am. You know, I, it's good. It's good for a novel, but um, it's sometimes bad for them. Um, I'm kind of a circumspect guy in real life, uh, so having characters that you know went out, and made risks, uh, was was fun for me. But yeah, no, I really miss these people. When I got a. a the email from my editor saying, oh, it looks like we're done. Yeah, no more notes. I was like, no. <laughs> oh, man. I was like, are you sure you don't want to change this chapter? I actually wrote her in February, and it's like, can we change this chapter? I just really wanted to work on it some more. Yeah, no, it's such a, such a pleasure to be with these people. My God. Um, yeah, no, I, re- I really miss them, and I, I don't know if they'll show up in my future work, but, um, the, yeah, I don't know. It was just a... Uh, my favorite thing to do every day was to wake up in the morning and get to be with these people. 
That's yeah. wonderful. I noticed that Smarmy Kitten made an appearance yeah. in the text. <laughs> and uh, Aaron Solomon has made an appearance here. He is who I originated Smarmy Kitten with in, uh, in, the, in freshman year at uh, Northwestern in the... Um, in the Willard Cafeteria, um, I sat across from him and said, I'd like to start a band called Smarmy Kitten. And he was like, all right. <laughs> I couldn't play an instrument uh, at all or sing. And he was interested in playing bass but didn't own one. <laughs> Nevertheless, we started a band, and that band uh, played at, existed for years and recorded an album. And, uh, yeah, played at an art museum. and Yeah, yeah. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the anyway, uh, yeah. So. Yeah. Oh no no! Please continue. Yeah. If you wish to. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if you feel like this or not, but uh, a, a while ago we were having a conversation about you reading Infinite Jest, and uh, do you remember this? Oh yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. Um, and kind of how it expanded your concept of the novel. Yeah, it was one of many books that did. Yeah. yeah and I yeah, remember and when I finished reading that book, I felt like a better writer for having read it. I think yeah. that's. I would love if you would feel like it to sort of expound on that a little bit because. Oh wow. Because I think that when you read great books, yeah, invariably you sort of have an insight into how the process works. Oh. And, uh, you know. I feel like a bit of a chump talking about it, Infinite Jest in front of Anthony Miller. Well, that's I uh, asked wherever, him earlier. Yeah. If we could talk about. This. I mean, he, yeah, he, he and <laughs> yeah, he and Michael Silverblatt talked about David Foster Wallace for an hour after he died on KCRW, and uh, it was one of the most intelligent hours of radio I've ever heard in my life. Uh, so yeah, I, I feel a little bit like a like a. Like I'm swimming in the shallow end of this conversation, uh, but uh, I, all I can talk about is uh, uh, the emotional effect that book had on me. Absolutely, I I tried to read it three times. First of all, like, yeah, I, I, the first two times I couldn't get through it. You know, I, I'm I'm human. Um, <laughs> you know, love does nonfiction. You know, um, uh, supposedly fun thing we'll never do again. I've read a million times, but Infinite Jest just kind of sat there. You know, in my life, you know, like a, you know, like a, a sailboat on my lawn, and uh, and I thought, oh, eventually I got to deal with this thing. I, you know, <laughs> and and when I finally finished it, I thought, oh my god. I, I, I'm, I'm smarter for, I'm smarter now, you know. <laughs> it, 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 to me, it felt like it expanded my notion of, uh, of narrative, you know, and I've read other books, uh, as well, other contemporary novelists, and, you know, I, I, I think I felt that way about Pale Fire, I felt that way, um, oh yeah. boy, about a lot, you know, Grapes of Wrath back in the day, you know, there are always books that just sort of, like, stretch the elastic a little more, you know. Um, <laughs> and then there were other contemporary books like uh, Visit from the Goon Squad, uh, you know, that I thought was, you know, somewhat commensurate to my narrative in, in terms of playing with uh, timeline. Yeah, and I thought, oh, that's, that's fun. I can do that. Yeah, yeah, it's so inventive. I mm-hmm. love the fact you can never predict what's about to happen. Each chapter is sort of like a little I sure mini. didn't know. I mean, I don't outline. <laughs> I, I figure out what I'm writing as I'm writing it. So... Um, yeah, every, every, I'd sit down with these people and I'd have them tell me basically what they were going to do and I'd find out and they'd go, no, don't do that. That's, oh, all right. And then they would get into, they'd get into trouble or they'd unpack their lives in front of me and I'd deal with it. Yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, they'd make choices that would preclude other choices and it would make certain inevitabilities and in those inevitabilities narrative erupts, you know, like a, like a pimple on prom night. <laughs> <laughs> would you? Would you? I think we discussed this. You would try and force them occasionally, right? And they would oh, just yeah. rebel yeah. as characters. They would refuse to do that. So you'd have to to back away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which yeah. again is that's remarkable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, who would like to hear a reading from the book? Yeah. All right. 
All right, this is from the second to last chapter, bars. Um, I guess all you need to know is that the protagonist of this chapter, Pat Prager, uh, has won the uh, best bars division of the Deer Lake County Bake Off. She was the representative from First Lutheran Church in Deer Lake. They basically sweep bars every year. And so uh, she's, she's won the uh, $50 Target gift card. And uh, a new person in town has got uh, has put the bee in her bonnet to go to Minneapolis and go to an event at the Millennium Hotel downtown thrown by a food blog called Petite Noisette. And so she's entering her uh, bars in the Petite Noisette contest, and this is what happens. Pat hadn't actually been to the city of Minneapolis in more than two years. And as she got older, each trip down there seemed to overwhelm and exhaust her before she even got out of the car. She was just about shocked out of her shoes when she saw how much it would cost to park at the hotel garage, but told herself it was much safer than parking on those streets. In the hotel lobby, which was very fancy and clean, if a bit spare on the decor, she didn't see many women her age or many women who looked like her at all, and certainly nobody carrying around a glass tray of bars covered in plastic wrap. They were all way up to the floor that the ballroom was on before she even saw somebody carrying something that might have food in it. A tall blonde woman in her 20s, dressed in an immodest striped dress with unsettling tattoos of tigers on the back of her exposed thighs and calves, was carrying some kind of rectangular maroon duffel bag that looked like a nicer version of what pizza delivery guys use. Pat and Sam, that's her son, followed the woman to a registration table set up outside two large open doors. The sign mounted on an easel read, Petite Noisette, Best of Bake Event. They watched as the woman handed her large bag over to the pretty girl seated behind the table, one of whom ran it inside to the ballroom behind her, while the other checked the woman's, na- the woman's name off a list and asked her to sign some papers. As the tattooed woman pranced into the ballroom, one of the girls at the table looked directly at Sam. Sir, she asked, what's your name and registration number? Sam looked blankly at the girl's upbeat face. Huh? Uh, no, I'm here with my mom. Oh, the pretty girl said, and then looked at Pat. Oh, cool. <laughs> Pat set her bars down on the table. Hi, I'm Pat Prager, and this is my son, Sam. Okay, the girl said. It's a $20 admission for guests. What? Oh, gosh, Pat said. I got it, Mom, Sam said, opening a surprisingly fat wallet. And Pat didn't even want to know. <laughs> the girl accepted the 20 from Sam and then looked at Pat as the other girl poked the red plastic wrap on Pat's bars with her pen. And this is your entry? Yeah, these are my peanut butter bars. Do you have an informational card with the recipe or ingredients? Uh, no, I didn't know I was supposed to bring one. That's okay. Are they vegan, gluten-free, celiac, non-GMO, all the above? Pat looked at the girls and then at Sam. No, I don't think so. Any of the above? None of the above, I don't think. Where did you source your ingredients from? One of them asked. Are they local? Yeah, Pat said. They're from the store about a mile from my house. (laughs) One of the girls behind the table laughed. Sorry, she said. Pat was so confused. Well, they are. I maybe even have the receipt in my purse. No, 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 that's fine. Go go on in. Peer voting just started and we'll go until 8.30. Get your ballots at the red table. Have them sign the release forms, the other girl said. 
Oh yeah, sign those. This one's a consent to video and audio taping. And this one basically says that you're responsible for what you eat and supply to be eaten, and it waves petite noisette for many damages. Pat had never heard of anybody suing the organizers of a bake-off before. <laughs> but she had already knew that she wasn't dealing with the usual crowd here. Being a good sport, she and Sam signed everything and stepped into the doorway of the ballroom. It was like something out of a movie. One entire wall was a half glass dome of triangles that looked out upon the dark, twinkling Minneapolis skyline. Young people in summer yellows and pale greens moved plates of cinnamon and caramel and vanilla scents across the dark carpeted floor, setting the desserts up on small cream tables tagged with black numbers. Up a couple of stairs, at the far end of the long carpeted room, a tattooed young woman in a tasseled stocking cap and a basketball jersey stood behind two laptops as some kind of jittery music played from the speakers on both sides of her. She remembered when popular music didn't sound like a chainsaw falling down a flight of concrete stairs and actually made people want to dance. Backing away into the doorway of the ballroom, Pat realized that she could hear the registration girls talking. Locally sourced ingredients, one of them said. From the store a mile from my house? I might have to tweet that one. These are so weird and gross. Pat, still standing in the doorway to the ballroom, watched as one of the girls from the desk brought her tray of bars to the man in a black suit who brought them to a long table and scooped them out onto an empty platter labeled with the number 49. Pat thought she was going to cry. Did you hear that? She said to her son. Yeah, fuck him, Sam said. <laughs> she was actually slightly pleased to hear her son swear. They're a bunch of snobs. Let's see what the hell they think is so damn good. Sam walked to the nearest table where something labeled chocolate chip banana oat cakes, vegan, gluten-free, soy-free, sat on a platter next to number three. Pat looked at the card next to the platter. Two cups gluten-free oats sourced from the organic pesticides and GMO-free farm of Seymour and Peony Schmidt, Faribault, Minnesota, home processed and oat flour. One half cup regular oats, not processed, same source as above. One half cup brown sugar, homemade, fresh, unsulfured molasses, molasses, stirred into organic fair trade Hawaiian cane sugar, each, each purchased at Frogtown Community Co-op. One half teaspoon ground Ceylon cinnamon, fair trade, purchased at Frogtown Community Co-op. One half cup gala applesauce, homemade apples sourced from McBroom Orchards, Hudson, Wisconsin, organic GMO and pesticide free. Two medium, very ripe organic bananas, fair trade, purchased at Frogtown Community Co-op. <laughs> Two tablespoons Sunrise Hills brand low-fructose artisanal blue agave syrup purchased direct from manufacturer Taos, New Mexico. <laughs> Pat stopped reading there. <laughs> Sam chucked one of the oat cakes in his mouth. Nothing special, he said. <laughs> kind of weird. Kind of like eating a banana-flavored granola bar or something. Want one? Pat shook her head. She didn't even want to know what it was like. <laughs> I'll tell you this, Mom, Sam said. Eli would throw a shit fit if you had served this for dessert. <laughs> the ingredients, they're so specific, Pat said. These people make their own oat flour and brown sugar? It all looks the same in the toilet the next morning, Sam said. <laughs> Pat laughed a little. Thank God for him. A young man in tight jeans, a plaid shirt, and a bow tie walked up to Sam. Kind of a weird fashion sense, but he was smiling, and that's what counted. <laughs> hey, man, he said, you need a pallet. Oh, yeah, that's right, Sam said. We got, we got a vote. What's your name? Oh, Sam Jorgensen, he said, glancing at his mom. I'm Dylan, and that's my wife, Una, over there, the young man said, pointing to a happy-looking young woman in yellow high-waisted pants standing near the DJ. Didn't those kind of pants go to style a long time ago, 
Maybe they're on sale and she was trying to save money. <laughs> oh, you brought your mom with you. That's cool. Yeah, Sam said. Pat could see once again that her son was mistaken for the chef. And this time she stepped back and remained silent, remembering the last time she opened her mouth to this crowd. Oh, it's great to see someone so young be so serious in the kitchen. How old are you? Sam said, I turn 17 next week. Oh, you got to be the youngest person here. I had to come over and meet you. What's your specialty? Brownies. <laughs> uh, nice. Where do you buy your ingredients? Well, the main ingredient I grow myself at home. <laughs> I love it, the young man said, genuinely excited. That is so awesome. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> we made the raw, no-bake chocolate tort, number eight over there. What about you? You enter your brownies? Oh, oh no, no. <laughs> we got the peanut butter bars, number 49. Let's try them, Dylan said, waving his wife over. I'll vote for yours if you vote for mine. Uh, sure. Go get your ballots at the red table, Dylan told Sam and Pat. We'll meet you at number 49. Well, that was a friendly young man, Pat said. She looked around at the room at the pretty, strangely dressed young people. Celeste had put her up to this. If Pat's bar somehow won over this crowd of picky eaters, it would be because she once again met a test and overcame it. She had held on to her faith at the county fair, and God blessed her. Perhaps in this strange land, he would bless her again. Pat and Sam found a stack of sheets on the red table that had checkboxes next to the numbers 1 through 50, and a short line for comments next to each. Pat thought it was extremely strange to have a baked goods contest where the contestants voted, but didn't say anything to anybody. She just wanted to skip to the end. She looked across the room at Dylan and Una, who were now consuming Pat's bars back at number 49 with a third person, a serious, solidly-looking woman in her mid-twenties wearing a white t-shirt and cargo pants, who stood out for most of the room because of her plain, unfashionable clothes. Hey, Sam said. Sorry that everyone thinks I'm the cook. It's okay with me, Pat said. I think I'm fishing in the wrong pond here. Oh, I don't know, Mom. I think you're going to kill. You're the only person that made anything that anybody knows. You want to go try those people's chocolate cake thing? I don't know. You can. Pat heard a voice say, excuse me, and turned to see the woman in cargo pants standing next to them. She was much taller up close, and her clothes, well casual, seemed brand new. I'm Eva, the woman said. Are you the people who made the bars at number 49? Yeah, Sam said. He seemed to have gotten used to speaking for the two of them. <laughs> I just wanted to confirm that. And you are? Oh, Sam Jorgensen. This is my mom, Pat Prager. She actually made them. I'm just here hanging out. Oh, cool beans, Eva said, and looked at Pat in a strange but warm way, as if Pat were a letter from home with money inside. <laughs> Pat, I haven't had bars like that since I was a kid in Iowa. Well, thank you, Pat said. I don't know how old you are, but I know I haven't changed the recipe since then. Before Eva could respond, a young bearded man in a vest put his arm around her shoulder, muttered something in his ear, muttered something in her ear, and briskly led her to a table of young people nearby. As she was pulled away, Eva looked back at Pat and shrugged sadly as if to say, Oh, what can you do? As they watched Eva become enveloped in a new conversation, Pat whispered to her son, I think that was one of the judges. To pass the time, they joined a small crowd assembled around a platter, number eight, the raw, no-bake chocolate tort. Pat looked at the instructions. Prep time, 30 minutes. Freezer time, two hours. She started to read the ingredients, but stopped when she got to avocado. <laughs> what is this? She said. How the heck can you make a cake like this? 
She felt all of the young people crowded around, crowded around the table start to vanish and quickly, like a bunch of parents, leaving the pool that somebody's kid pooped in. <laughs> and what does raw mean? Pat asked. Raw cake? What does that mean? <laughs> oh, it means that none of the ingredients were ever cooked, said a bearded older man, his sandy hair thinning, pink polo shirt buttoned to the top. Sometimes the kitchens that make raw food don't even have hot water. Hey, a female voice called out. And Pat, Sam, and the bearded man all turned to see Una and Dylan waving at them from platter number 49. Hey, come over here. Pat and Sam had made their way across the room to platter 49, where Una had a big smile on her face. Wow, guys, she said. What's in these? They're amazing. They totally taste like the real thing, Dylan said and glanced at Una. What's in them? Sam looked at his mom. Butter, Pat said. (laughs) Powdered sugar, peanut butter, milk chocolate chips, graham crackers. Dylan and Una stared back. Butter, Una said. What kind, almond butter? No, regular milk butter. Like from cows? Hormone-free cows? I don't know. It was Land O'Lakes butter. It was what was on sale. Oh, Dylan said. Does their milk have bovine growth hormone? Una asked Dylan. I don't know, but I think they're on the list, Dylan said. Are you thinking about the baby? I don't know. Do you think I should go vomit it up? I don't know. Is that worse? The bile and the stomach acids? Pat couldn't believe what she was hearing. She felt like a pilot flying through clouds who couldn't see anything. On purpose? You're going to vomit up my bars? Una, face-pinched, glared at Pat and Sam. You trying to trick people or something by not having an ingredients card? It's not funny. People have serious allergies and dietary preferences and things. I'm sorry, I didn't know, Pat said. And I didn't know you were carrying. It's true, and it didn't appear to be showing at all. Cow's milk is really bad, especially for children, Dylan said. It's full of hormones and toxins, Una said. Pat looked at Sam. Well, I ate these same bars every month when I was pregnant with him, and he turned out okay. <laughs> but that was your choice, Una said. <laughs> It's not mine. You have to care about what other people put in their bodies. I'm sorry, Pat said, her voice wavering. She was not raised to confront people or defend herself in confrontation. She was raised to appease, to mollify, to calm, to tuck little monsters in at night, to apologize for things that she screwed up without realizing, to forgive, to sweeten in her bars. Her bars did that for the world. They were her, I'm sorry. They were her, like me. They were her, love freely given. You can't just blindly feed these to pregnant people, Una said. (laughs) I've been making these bars my whole life, Pat said, almost pleading. My whole entire life. Maybe it's time to stop, Una said. (laughs) And take a look at what you're putting in there. She looked at Dylan. Come on, and the two walked away. Everyone near them at the Petite Noisette Affair having either overheard Pat's devastating confrontation with Dylan and Una or been made aware of it, quickly created a pocket of isolation for Pat and Sam in platter number 49. Gone was the hope of $5,000. Gone was the job in the cities and the dance lessons with Rodrigo in Spain. Pat had overreached. She had fallen prey to temptation. And her greed and selfishness had led to desires that had brought her to this sinful place. Her family, God was telling her, was all that mattered. Not the judgment of these people and their awful food. She suddenly felt sorry for these people, for perverting the food of their childhood, the food of their mothers and grandmothers, and rejecting its unconditional love in favor of what? What? Pat did not understand. 
She stepped forward, moving toward platter number eight, parting the crowd where she walked. How can you eat these raw cakes and things? She said, loud enough to be heard clearly over the music. You weren't raised on these things. None of you were. You were raised on good desserts, not on this crap. (laughs) Mom, can we go? Sam said. (laughs) Pat looked around the crowd. Most were too embarrassed to look directly back at her. Tell me, she said, who doesn't like bars? (laughs) Two burly men in dark clothes walked towards Pat and Sam. They had an expression on their faces that said, please make this easy on yourself. (laughs) Mom, Sam said. Who doesn't like bars, Pat said. Who doesn't like bars? That was wonderful. Um, Thank you for reading. (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you. Um, Does anyone have any questions? Oh, yeah. Questions, yeah. Oh, Ashley Perez. Uh, What character was the hardest to write? Oh, boy. Um, Which one did I spend... Brooke, which one did I spend the most time on? The one that is not in the book. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) An answer for the writers in the room. If it's too much work, get rid of it. Uh, let, yeah, uh, or at the very least, like, yeah. No, it did, yeah. The, the, the people that were the hardest to write, that I struggled with the most, didn't make the cut. Yeah, no, that's quite true. The, the people that I wrote, like, in one weekend, you know, like, uh, oh, they're in the book. Yeah. Um, uh, but, yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. Um, yeah, no, this, yeah. Yeah, they're, the people you'll never see uh, uh, were... I spent six weeks writing a chapter that will never see the light of day. In fact, three of the first chapters I wrote for this book didn't make the book. Uh, it took. Oh, can you see him? Uh, well, no, one of them was Early Girl. Yeah, so that one did see the light of day. But I like that chapter. I like those people a lot. Yeah, uh, they just didn't say anything new about Eva. Um, so, but yeah, okay, yeah. Long, long answer, short question. <laughs> and thanks, Ashley. Uh, someone else has a question somewhere. Come on. Right there, Josh. Yeah, Josh Shank. Talk to us about the structure and your interest in structural innovation and your inspirations for work and kind of experimental structure and it's such a it's such a defining feature of, of the book. I'm curious about what went into it. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I wanted to start. Well. I grew up in the Midwest myself, and like a lot of people who grew up in the Midwest, there's a lot of uh, Native Midwesterns here. I'm looking at one now, Leanne. Um, uh, I, I think sometimes we feel like we're part of a larger world, and early on in our lives we identify with, uh, I think, what I would call messages in a bottle from the outside world. I mean, for me it was uh, books and music, you know, like, you know, and I think like, oh, I, I want to identify with stuff that has n- basically nothing to do with Hastings, Minnesota. I mean, I grew up in a in a realm where uh, the cool kids like wore Oakley blades. They listened to heavy metal and country music. They drove lifted Chevy and Ford pickup trucks. And um, yeah, now I, I I'll listen to heavy metal and I would gladly drive a lifted truck. But um, <laughs> yeah, it eas- yeah easier to park. I would put a snow shovel on the front. Um, but. Um, but yeah, I felt really alienated in the world I grew up in, and so I really identified with things from the outside world, and uh, so I started really intimately in that world, in the world of the Midwest, and in the second chapter, there's Eva growing chocolate habanero peppers hydroponically in her closet at age 11, and the reason I did that is I thought that was sort of the culinary equivalent of 
identifying with something like not native to the Midwestern culture. And each chapter gets a little further away from her as she increases in talent and stature and um, and her, um, uh, what's the word, her public sphere kind of widens. Like, uh, and so, um, so naturally she becomes increasingly alienated from the reader. I, I wanted the reader to ha- sort of have a sense of like, you knew her as a kid and as she's getting more and more popular, you kind of see less and less of her. Um, yeah, it, it sort of followed that realm. Um, but, but overall, yeah, I wanted to follow the, also the path of someone who was raised in the Midwest, sought to identify themselves with things that weren't necessarily Midwestern in origin, but also never left the Midwest and chose items to define themselves by that didn't necessarily preclude um, the details of their upbringing. I mean, I, I feel like you can leave where you're from and not erase it. And, or you can, become a part, you can become a citizen of a larger world, but not at the expense of the world you grew up in. And Eva, to me, really reconciles the old world of Minnesota. She reconciles uh, Pat Prager's bars with uh, Unin Dillon, you know, with, um, you know, pesticide-free, GMO-free, you know, uh, you know, locavore, vegan, no-baked chocolate torts. You know, like, she exists in both realms, and I think both realms can exist together. Um, so, in terms of the narrative structure, yeah, I, want, I wanted to set it up so that when you get to the final chapter, uh, I don't want to, once again, I don't want to spoil anything for anyone who hasn't read it yet. I wanted Eva to be as much of a stranger to the reader as she was to the protagonist of that chapter. Uh, yes, Katie DiSabato, hey. author of The Ghost Network, out now by, from Melville Press. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah big fan. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you a question about structure. Okay. Um, um, so, when you began you know, sort of being with a new character, did you know in advance how their life was going to intersect with with Eva's? Oh, that's a great question, because eventually, um, yeah, eventually I did get like that. At first I just thought, oh, I just want to get major moments in her life, you know, her birth, the dinner party, uh, her 11-year-old life. Uh, at that point, you know, and some, some people in this room will know this, like Meg and Cecil and uh, Jillian Lauren, and Ben Laurie uh, and Sarah Kuhn, uh, all who are here, read a very early draft of that chapter. That character was called a different name, even. Um, um, but uh, yeah, but later on, I remember having a conversation with someone and being like, "There's a chapter missing from this, and I don't know what it is." And and uh, and that person said, um, "Do you talk about her in high school at all?" I'm like, "No, God damn it, that's a great idea." And uh, and I, I that's when Will Prager's chapter came in. He was like the third to last chapter I wrote was a middle chapter. By then I had written the beginning and the end, but I hadn't written this high school chapter, and it just really kind of locked things into place for me. This was, it was really a missing piece, and it just fit in so seamlessly because I was also able to really heavily involve her in that chapter. It really fit in well in terms of like the winnowing information you get chapter to chapter on Eva. Um, yeah, you get a lot of her in there because that chapter is told from the point of view of a guy that unsuc- unsuccessfully dates her. Like he, he's her boyfriend for like one and a half dates, basically. Yeah, and he's nuts about her and he thinks about her all the time. And so she's very alive in that chapter, whether or not she's in scene. Um, and that, yeah, that, that chapter, yeah, came in basically out of necessity. Yeah, so yeah, great question. Thank you. Oh, yeah, uh, Sarah Labrie. 
uh, editor of the 2015 edition of the California Prose Directory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, now I'm reading, uh, thanks to George, I'm reading uh, Jim Booten's Ball Four. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and it's exactly what I need to be reading right now. I, need to, I want to read something that's just completely different than what I'm uh, writing and thinking about and reading um, and touring with. Uh, but yeah, during, um, well, writing this book, I read an awful lot of Alice Munro, who is kind of my North Star as a short story writer. I love her to death. I read her, and I also read a lot of contemporary fiction by uh, writers that were putting books out at the time, like, uh, like Jim Ruland. I read his book. I read Rob Roberge's book, Cost of Living, while I was writing this. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I was constantly reading. And I think I got pretty good at kind of separating the input from the output. I think early on it could have been a problem in terms of... Um, What's the word? Like uh, internalizing the voices of what I was reading too much, but eventually that didn't get to be an issue. Um, but yeah, no, I just wanted to read stuff I liked, and uh, yeah, now I'm just basically reading stuff that's just so out of left field. Uh, I guess literally uh, <laughs> uh, from what I'm uh, dealing with every day. That um, yeah, that yeah. So ball four. So yeah, thanks. Yes, please. Boy, difficult hurdle. Um, wow. Uh, Brooke, what do you think? <laughs> Any guesses? Okay. Um, uh, probably transitioning from having a day job to not. Uh, by the point I'd started writing this book, I'd saved up money for, well, maybe five years, uh, knowing I wanted to write a novel. And the uh, plan was, like, I'm going to live off these savings and take a year off and write a book. But I just started writing it when I was still working, so I had to figure out a way to... Uh, uh, write it while I was working on uh, it was Storage Wars Texas at the time and I see at least one person here from Storage Wars Texas which is God yeah I, yeah there they are. I love those guys. Yeah, it was my favorite show I've ever worked on. It was such a joy to work on. And that was a part of it, too. It's like I really loved my job at the time. And I wrote in the mornings before going to work and sometimes when I got home at night. But also the, the most important thing was every Saturday I wrote. While I was working a day job, I would just tell people, and I, if Athena and Matt are here, they would, rec yeah. One time I called off hiking with them because I get to, oh, it's a Saturday. I can't do that. Um, uh, yeah, I, I felt like... Um, like I had to, um, what's the word? Um, di yeah, discipline. Yeah, that's that's perfect. Yeah, and and also kind of enforce uh, this writing time and say like and make it uh, sa a sacred space, for lack of a better term, and say like this is what I'm gonna. This is the day I use for writing, and I write until 7 p.m. this day every day, and I got so much done on those days. I actually think I got a lot done while I was still working because I had all these things working against me and I knew I had to be into work by like 10.30 or so and so I uh, would always um, or at least be on the road by 10.30 and I, you know, this, the, uh, this, as the storage wars Texas people can probably say I wasn't always into work that early. Uh, but I, at, at the very least in the morning I was um, you know, I knew I had to end at a certain time. I had to go into work and do my job and I had Saturday and so having those restrictions really made me work pretty hard and by the time that job ended in May of 2013 um, I was on my way and I and then when I was given all day every day I just yeah punched right through it uh, anyone else oh yeah yeah Tia Stark yeah um, did you eat any food from your childhood while you were writing 
Did I eat any what? I'm sorry. You did some new childhood memory, oh right? yes, I did. <laughs> well, the research for this job. Uh, oh, hey, I see Joel Archios back there. Yeah, yeah, he's a, a executive director of Eight Two Six, a very important organization to me. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, well, some of the research was more pleasant than others. Uh, like I'll go ahead and say, Ludafisk was. Uh, <laughs> a bit of a <laughs> a bit of a rough patch. Yeah, Brooke was there for that, and uh, yeah, that was not good. Uh, that, that that was much how I describe it in the book. Actually, of of all the of all the moments in the book that are probably the most true to life, the moment where Lars buys Ludafisk is pretty much word for word <laughs> with our interaction with the butcher in Hastings, Minnesota. <laughs> like we went in to buy Ludafisk, and and for those of you who don't know what Ludafisk is, it. Like, I describe it as uh, looking like jellied smog and smelling like boiled aquarium water. And I think I'm being kind. Um, it, it, it's probably the worst thing you can do to fish and still eat it. Um, you know, the peop- I, I think folks in Iceland and uh, the Northwest Territories do other horrid things to seafood that are equally um, re- uh, repugnant. But um, my, uh, my cultural heritage is um, Swedish-Norwegian on my mom's side. And so we got lutefisk as uh, cultural heritage. And uh, when my great-grandfather died, uh, the women in my family who inherited um, the Christmas traditions decided to like, oh good, we're, we're free of that. Yeah, yeah. Gus Johnson is dead. We don't have to eat that awful food that he, sh- like he enforced on us anymore. Uh, and so I, I, I got to go back and, uh, to Minnesota and try it again for the first time in about oh, 30 years. Uh, and uh, it's pretty bad. But I... <laughs> But for the most part, uh, the culinary research for this was really pleasant. I have a few friends in Portland who are huge uh, heirloom tomato enthusiasts, and I got to see their early grower planting season uh, for uh, their early girl tomatoes, which are not heirlooms, but um, gets discussed in the book. And, uh, and I got to see the level of attention given um, heirloom to, uh, well, tomatoes, since they're not uh, potential F1 hybrid tomatoes, um, or any tomatoes. Um, and I went to the St. Paul Farmer's Market, went to the Minnesota State Fair. Uh, overall, it was pretty, pretty great, uh, like Ludafisk being the exception. Uh, uh, yeah, and, and since I've been traveling with this book, people have made bars a bunch. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, it's great. I, you know, maybe next time I'll, I'll, say, I'll, I'll say salad or something less, uh, <laughs> yeah, something less intense on the waistline. Uh, but... Um, but it, it's still really, really uh, a blessing, and I feel very lucky to go places and see people making recipes from the book. It's like blowing my mind. Anyway, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. I think there's one. Anyone else? This, we have one over here. Okay. You, sir. Oh, yeah, David. David Anderson. From Wyzetta? Oh, no, from Wyzetta? Plymouth. Plymouth. Okay, nearby. Okay. Um, yeah. With Harrison Keel retiring, oh. <laughs> I, I hear someone from Nickel Creek is taking the job, and that's just fine with me. Yeah, I I want to I want to be the engineer of my own train. Yeah. But also, I know you have a history in screenwriting. Oh sure. About how that experience? Uh... Well, frankly, I think my experience in uh, reality television helped quite a bit. I mean, I I described it in one interview as I think like the economy of the necessary. It may not always seem like it, but when you watch a show like Storage Wars, every sentence that's uttered in that show is examined as to its ultimate benefit. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the problem is some of the people uttering the sentences don't out, you know aren't always as articulate or, um, or or interesting or or enlightening as you'd like them to be. But but um, that show was so pleasant to work on, and one of the reasons it was great to work on is because you you're 
sitting there and someone, you know, producer makes like a 40 minute cut of an episode and you've got to cut it down to, what is it, like 2130? Is that right, Eric Lyons? Was it 2130? Okay, yeah. And so that's a lot of cutting. You know, like usually we'd get a rough cut. I was a finishing uh, producer, a supervising producer. I worked with Joe Mike and he was the editor and, and we would get a, a, like a 29 minute cut ideally or, or less and work it down. And so when you think about uh, a narrative on a sentence level like that, it can't help but influence your writing. I mean, even though I was writing something completely different than Storage Wars Texas, when you think about a story in that realm, you know, you go back to your own writing and say, like, oh, wow, does it, I really need this sentence? Is this sentence redundant? Because one of the main things we eliminate uh, when we cut TV down is redundancies. And, oh, boy, working in TV is absolutely great for eliminating redundancies from your own private writing. Um, but... And also just like, does every sentence either enlighten, entertain, move the story forward, all the above? Because if not, it's out. And so you start thinking about things in that realm. And um, yeah, so yeah, I'd say my TV experience, probably most of all. Uh, the screenwriting, since I never had a screenplay get made, uh, I don't know if that really helped, uh, but, but the, TV, uh, the TV writing, absolutely, yeah. Okay, anything else? Uh, I have one more question. Oh yeah, yes please. Has the book been optioned? Uh, I've got a book to film agent, but uh, I don't know anything about that yet. Um, I don't know. It's looking good. It's looking good, my agent says. All right, so that's, that's, that's what I'm at liberty to say. All right, yeah. Anybody else? Okay, Sarah Fenner yeah. Detergent. Yeah. Um, Julie, actually, you started to ask a question about community. I'm curious of the rest of the question and Jay Ryan's answer. How much of you've lived in LA since uh, what uh, 1990? July 4th, 1998. And you, I, I, I decided to drive uh, approach here south on the 405 that morning. <laughs> I was like, oh, that, that road goes right into LA, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Two hours later, I've been Westwood, yeah, yeah. Even on July 4th, it was pretty bad. Oh, yeah, and uh, but one of the things I really liked about my first couple months in LA was I heard the best place to see fireworks on the 4th of July was Long Beach, and I thought nothing of going to Long Beach, you know, from, from Westwood. I was like, yeah, if that's where, the, that's where they are, I'm going to go. You know, n now I, you know, I live in like, uh, like the Los Feliz Silver Lake Boulevard, uh, border, and it's tough to get me to go to La Brea, you know, like, but like back then I was like, yeah, I'll go to Long Beach, yeah, I'm going to, yeah. Anyway, uh, but anyway, community, I'm sorry, go ahead. You spoke about once how you had uh, wanted to foster a particular kind of environment, um, mm. and it seems like you've succeeded. Well, I, I, you know what? I, I got I was summer a lot for that as well. Uh, summer block Kumar, my um, hot dish co-conspirator. We were at a yeah, yeah. Let's have a huge, huge hand for her. Oh my God, she's amazing, a visionary. And summer and I uh, were leaving a reading once, and um, we thought, wow, you know, the problem with this reading was um, there was no food, there was nothing to drink, there was nowhere to sit. Uh, the people went on for too long. I'm sorry. Um, and um, there were too many people, and there was no intermission. And we're like, Boy, I think we're, we're just going to have to do that. Like, we're going to have to make our own reading with all those things. And so we did, and we called it Hot Dish. And we started at uh, the Echo Park Film Center, and then we moved to 826 LA. Yeah, I absolutely love Tia and Joel and, and, and uh, Kristen Laurie are here, and maybe more people I... But, uh, yeah, and so we eventually started doing it as a fundraiser for them because we thought, oh, this will be fun. Uh, like, like, let's uh, serve food and t have people tell stories and raise money for an organization that uh, is really awesome. And um, we've been doing it for about 
Uh, I think we're in a six year. Yeah. People love the hot dishes. No, they thanks. always like, thanks. Mm, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, any other questions? Or, or I guess, okay. Well, if you have a copy of your book, I yeah. know you're going to sign it. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And thank you everyone for thank coming Thank you so up. much for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.